if you're in your Bibles, we are in Ecclesiastes 2. My father, your, your pastor, has given me an impossible task this morning uh, with covering a large swath of this book, uh, Ecclesiastes. We're going to cover, hopefully, crossing our fingers, uh, from verse 12 of chapter 2 all the way through the end of chapter 3, verse 22 of chapter 3, which seems like a lot. Uh, but I think we'll be okay. I think we'll manage. Um, in my opinion, Ecclesiastes is one of the most important books in your entire Bible. Uh, it's the one that I think is often overlooked. Uh, you don't often hear a lot of sermon series on Ecclesiastes, but I think when you get down to what Solomon is trying to say and is trying to do as you are reading through the things, the various avenues in which he was pursuing the meaning of life, I think when you get down to what he's actually saying, I think Ecclesiastes is one of the most foundational books in your entire Bibles. And I think it's a misconception to think that it has in it an invitation to this meaningless life. Uh, especially, like, if you look at 20, verse 24 of chapter 2, it kind of sounds like he's just saying, we should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And it sounds like that. If you take that verse in a vacuum, it could appear as if Solomon is inviting us to just a meaningless life to just live this way. But actually, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. He's actually saying something quite different, quite profound. And if you read Ecclesiastes, it's brimming. It's full to the brim of just unexpected language. The words Solomon uses, the, the phrases he employs, the different topics he chooses to talk about are very unexpected. And they actually confront us in ways like, are you allowed to say that? He's, in other translations, you might hear him call, call himself the preacher. He's calling himself the preacher, and here is a 12-point sermon, essentially, on what he perceives to be the meaning of life. But this is a very unexpected sermon because in it you will find no redemptive language. He doesn't talk about Jesus. He doesn't talk about the world being remade and being made better. He doesn't talk about uh, all tears being wiped away from our eyes. Even though he talks about such grievous topics, he doesn't mention the Savior. So it's a very different sermon. It's a very, I would, I'd like to call it a very human sermon in that it's just language about what is. He doesn't talk about uh, how things should be necessarily. He's just looking through the lens of what he has perceived as the meaning of life. And he shows us how things are and perhaps why they are that way. And really, Ecclesiastes is sort of, uh, one other writer called it lessons in coping with the rubble of once Eden. Once Eden is his term for this world. It's Eden that once was, because now it has been ruined by the fall. In this world that we know as once Eden, it once was beautiful and luscious and perfect and pristine, has now been marred by scandal and violence and hatred and bloodshed. It's once Eden, and we're learning to find faith there, in that world. Faith in that fractured existence that Solomon is here uh, writing to and speaking to. And he doesn't call us to escape this world. Throughout this, this book, he's not calling us to uh, leave this existence because it is so ruinous and bad and dark. He's calling us to engage it. 
to engage right where we are, as broken as we see things, and in it you're going to find, yes, the meaning of life. In the midst of all of that disaster and all of that discomfort, we are there called to. We are called to enter into that disaster. Those who believe in the Savior, yes, we are called to enter into that, the, that discombobulation of life. Because we do have the meaning. And such is what he's going to write about here. Jump to chapter 3. I want to go through chapter 3. Um, and then we're going to highlight the end of chapter 2. Uh, and, and that's backwards, I know. But we're going to do it that way. Uh, and for all you type A'ers, I apologize. I don't have like a really alliterative like 1, 2, 3 outline. But you can, hopefully you can stay with me. Uh, I hope you can. Uh, but I really love this chapter especially. Chapter 3, I think, is a really formative chapter in what Solomon is going to do. And he's coming to grips with these rhythms of life. The first eight verses, listen to what he says. Uh, they're going to be kind of tedious, and I think that's the point. Look at what he says. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the, under the heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? It's a really fascinating passage. A really fascinating, uh, curious way of looking at existence. But here you can see Solomon wrestling with what we could call the seasons of life. Our lives are defined by seasons. We're entering one right now. Where we are in Pennsylvania, it looks a lot more wintry than it does here, uh, or I should say fall-ish. Um, but we have seasons that govern our existence. You know that what happens after summer is fall. What happens after fall is winter. We cannot change that progress of time. We cannot change it. It's something that just happens. It's something that we are existing in. And he's recognizing it here. There are seasons of life that churn and march forward on which we have no control. He, he says, my life is ruled by these seasons. And though there are things that I can look out and see, I can see that my life is in constant flux. Warring and peace, speaking and being silent, birthing and dying, planting and plucking up. There's so many things in his life, all profound evidence that he has no ability to change his seasons and no ability to rest in them either. Why? Because they are constantly changing. They are moving forward. He cannot count on the times uh, because the times are changing. And he even references that this very thing, man who seeks to find his meaning in these times and these changing seasons is like a beast. Look what he says in verse 18. He said, I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. 
For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go unto one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Mankind, he's saying, is so fallen, he can't even see his own fallenness. He's blind to his own depravity. And that's why he's, he's not comparing men to animals, and he's trying to uh, sort of argue for that lower view of humanity. He's just recognizing that man's sin has brought on this self, it's a self-made ruin. Our once Eden that we live in is self-inflicted. <laughs> We brought ourselves into this mess. Why? Because we, like beasts, thought that we could find what is lasting amongst the seasons that change, amongst the times that are fluctuating and constantly moving. If you're trying to find your meaning and your purpose for life amongst these things around us, you are like a beast, he says. Mankind is like a beast, looking for all that is in this once Eden, in this exile, this place of exile, for what is eternal. Man has, like a beast, crippled himself, castrated himself on this life of vanity, this life of of meaninglessness, by searching for meaning and purpose and pleasure in these things that he says elsewhere that are under the sun. And really, that's just a treatment of the soul as if it's something that's expendable. It's something that can be bartered or traded. And such is the irony of our times. Why? Because we are in the exact same state. This, this uh, description of mankind isn't just unique to Solomon. Look what he says in verse 16 of chapter 3. Or excuse me, verse 15. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. And God requireth that which is past. Whatever has been, it's, it's coming back around to us now. And whatever is, is, has been is now. And whatever hath, hath been has already been before. <laughs> Weird language, but he's just saying this is how it's always been. Since the garden, since the fall of man in Eden, we have inflicted our own ruin by looking for something constant. Unmixed the seasons that are always inconstant. They're always changing. They're always moving forward. They're always becoming different. And man is still the same. He's looking for something lasting amongst those things that are transient, that are temporal, that are vanity, he says. And he's shirking. He's shirking any notion. Mankind is trying to evade any idea that the goodness and grace that he craves for in his soul can be found uh, apart from God. He's trying to evade that idea. Such is the the whole reason for this book. He's searching every single avenue imaginable and pushing it to their limits to see if there's meaning in that avenue. Yeah, Solomon didn't try certain things that we have, pleasures that we have, but he tried the limits of human existence in every single way imaginable. You, he pursued building projects, he pursued prestige, he pursued knowledge, he pursued pleasure, he pursued every single thing you can think of. He tried it to the nth degree. 
Why? Because he's exactly what he's talking about here. Searching for meaning and lasting, something eternal. And that's why he comes to this horrific revelation for him. Look at verse 11. He says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. And look at verse 14. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. This is a troubling revelation for Solomon. Why? He's a king. He's a monarch. He rules people. He can have whatever he wants at the command, at the snap of his fingers. He can have whatever he wants. Yet here he's saying, I can't have that. I have to bow to the will of someone else for meaning. I have to bow at the purposes of someone else for what my soul craves. Such is every man's heart. He cannot know the will of God. He has to bow to it. He has to submit himself to it. He cannot change the times. They march forward and they operate at the maker's will. The one who made and ruled and orders the times. They come about according to what he says. What he says goes. And there is no adding to it. That's what he says in verse 14. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. We can't add to these times. We can't take away from it. We can't change them. We can't speed them up. We can't slow them down. You cannot change the process of God in this world. It will happen according to His time. According to His seasons. And that's troubling for Solomon. It's troubling for us too. Why? Because it's hard to see God in this time. It it might feel like we are in the darkest time of existence. I promise you it's not. It's just more in your face. (laughs) Because they didn't have Twitter when Sodom and Gomorrah were going crazy. (laughs) If they did, it would be worse than this. Or when Solomon had 3,000 wives. Can you imagine Twitter in that day and age? (laughs) But it's more in our face now. So it appears as if it's as bad as it's ever been. It appears as if God has, has left us. Where is God? In these times, where is his finger of sovereignty and grace and judge, justice in these times? He's confessing the same thing. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. And the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. Everything is corrupt. Where there should be pristine judgment, there is wickedness. Where there should be righteousness, there is iniquity. From the top down, it is entirely corrupt. And like Solomon, it could make us pine for very different times. You get that sense of nostalgia. Oh, I wish I lived in the 50s. They had their problems too. Don't let Back to the Future make you think that the 80s were any better than now, or even the 50s in that movie. They had their problems too. Man doesn't change. We might think that he is, you know, uh, pristine and good and nice back then, and now we are much worse off. They were saying the same thing then. (laughs) We can't change our times. We cannot decide or determine which times we live in. 
You might know what I'm going to say next. It reminds me of the Lord of the Rings. I love the Lord of the Rings. My favorite books and my favorite movies, and I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, the movies are, are not as good as the books. I'm not one of those people. Uh, I love the movies, in fact. And in fact, I can't believe I'm saying this, but they're almost 20 years old. You want to make me feel old? I'm 29, and that makes me feel ancient that the Lord of the Rings came out almost 20 years ago. That's crazy. <coughs> but regardless, it, there's a great set of lines and in the books, they appear much earlier in Frodo's and Gandalf's conversation. But in the movies, they appear in the minds of Moria, right? And it's, it's happening when they're confused and they're stopped. And Frodo, he, he, he complains to Gandalf and he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. He's complaining about the fact that the great ring that Sauron forged, which could control their entire world, has now resurfaced and is happening in his lifetime. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And what does Gandalf say? He says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Gandalf is preaching a sermon to Frodo. (laughs) And I think it's God's message to Solomon as well. You cannot change your time. You cannot choose which season of life you live in. It might be a season of warring, or it might be a season of peace. It might be a season of planting, or a season of plucking up. It might be a time of dying, or it might be a time of living and birthing. You have no control over the times. We cannot change them any more than we can change the weather. No matter who you might hear say that we can change the weather, we can't. We are completely incapable of changing which season of life we are in. You can believe something else if you want, but you will be pushed to the nth degree that that is not our calling. That is not the thing that God wishes you would be shouldered by. Changing our times or changing the weather. This is not the lot that we have been given. Look at verse 12. He says, I know That there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in his life. Or look at verse 22. Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works. For that it is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? Who can let him see what comes after him? His calling Our purpose, our lot, is be faithful in the times that we are in. There's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works to be faithful to the times that he's in. Whether you're a time of planting or plucking up, whatever that duty entails, that is your calling. That is your purpose. That is your meaning. And it could be confusing, and this is what God's purpose looks like. Zach Eswine, he has a great commentary. He has a, he's, a, he's a writer and he wrote a commentary on this very same book. And he says something eerily similar to Gandalf. He says, all that we can do is to give ourselves to tend what we've been given. You can't change the offering that God has given to you in this life. All we can do is tend to it and be responsible to it and be faithful with it. 
And that's the best news of all. Because the best news comes when we understand that all of our times are in God's hands. And how idiotic it would be if we were in control of them. If we were in the driver's seat, we have to come to the realization that that would be complete anarchy and chaos. But such is why we have this wonderful confession of King Solomon. And we can even go to his daddy, King David, in Psalm 31.15. Why? Because he makes the same confession. He says, my times are in thy hand. My times are in God's hands. He has no ability to change them or rule over them. And such is what brings us to chapter 2. And his revelation there, so to speak, at the end of chapter 2. If you remember, uh, my dad has been bringing you through the the first parts of chapter 2. And he's talking about where he's looking for meaning. He's, he's leaving hedonism that he talks about at the early part, leaving materialism, and he's turning to some sort of intellectualism, uh, and, and that's where he's going to find meaning. He's pushing knowledge to the limits of human capabilities. Look at what he says in verse 12, of chapter 2, that is. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly, For what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath been already done? Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. But this too proved futile. Look at verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. What's that one event? death. He pushed wisdom and intellectualism and knowledge and scholasticism to the limits of his human ability. And what did he find out? It was all vanity. Why? Because the one event that man has no ability to rationalize or logic through or reason through is death. You can be a a fumbling, bumbling idiot and the most uh, esteemed scholar and essayist in the world. And the one thing that happens to them both that keeps them on the same plane is death. They both die. They both will come to the end of their life and they will both meet the same fate. The fools and the scholars, they meet the same end. Look at verse 15. He says, then I said in my heart... As it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. It's the great evening score of humanity. Death. He's distressed. He's exhausted. It did not make sense to him that these sages and these scoundrels would have the same fate. Look at verse 16. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten, and how dieth the wise man as the fool. They die the same way. Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And I have to hasten. Look at verse 18. He says, Yea, I hated all my labor. Which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Now he's hating the fact that he was successful. He's hating the fact that he's wise, because he cannot rationalize his way out of death. And now he's hating that he's successful. Why? Because he knows that in that death, 
his success is going to be passed on to someone else. Look at what he says. And who knoweth, verse 19, whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to the cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. <laughs> now he's mad. He's hating life. Why? Because he knows that he can't take anything with him. It's a cliche. It's very cliche. But you'd never see a U-Haul following a hearse. My dad says that all the time. But I think it's true. You can't take it with you. All of his successes, he can't bring with him. He's going to have to leave them. And who knows who he's going to leave them to, whether that person be a fool or wise. But he has no control over it. He has no control, regardless of who he signs his will to for his success, what that person is going to do with it. It's vanity. It's an empty thing. It's transient. It's temporal. He's going to have to give all of the fruits of his labor to something that didn't work for it, who didn't work for it. So no amount of accumulated knowledge or no amount of assembled legacies could ever halt death's march. He has no ability to stop the times. He has no uh, ability to change them or control them. God is sovereign in each and every single one of them. Death marches on. And so what's the point? What's the purpose then? And he comes to this conclusion. Look at verse 24 of chapter 2. He says, There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up. That he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. There he reckons. That in this tedium and in the, in the, these tumultuous seasons. What is man to do? What's the purpose of man is to enjoy the gifts that God has given him and be faithful in what God has called him to do. We can't control the times, so why are we fretting and being anxious over trying to change them? He's saying, rejoice in those that are around you. Nothing is better for man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy the good. This is from the hand of God. This isn't eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. It's eat, drink, and be merry because we can. Because God has given us these gifts. He is going to rule over tomorrow. We don't have to change it. We can be faithful right where we are. Whether we're around friends or whether we are witnessing to someone, whether we are working a late shift, it's being faithful in whatever God has given to us. Because guess what? Those moments aren't temporal. The times you spend with friends, you may think that this is wasting my life. Psalm is saying here, no. That he has an eternal purpose. It keeps your soul resting in the fact that you can enjoy being with those that God has given you. Why? Because God is worrying about tomorrow. You don't have to. You can enjoy 
college life. (laughs) Why? Because God has given you this season to be in. Don't pine away these years longing for what's coming afterwards. Enjoy where God has put you and be faithful where God has put you. This is your purpose. You can't change it. And there are things though that God has given to us to enjoy and to praise. And Solomon's lesson is that he doesn't, you'll notice throughout, he doesn't demonize these things. He doesn't demonize intellectualism or pleasure or any of those things. He just demonizes the idea of putting those things in place of God. That's what becomes vanity when we go to what God has given us for our rejoicing and our good. And we go to them for what they cannot offer. Soul peace. Satisfaction. Complete contentment. You're going to the gifts for only what the giver can give us. You're substituting God for lesser gods. Paul Tripp would call it God replacements. You're replacing God by going to what he has given you for your rejoicing. For only what he can offer. And you deceive yourselves by going to them and and believing that they will give you what you want. And like Solomon, you will come up every time saying this is vanity and vexation of spirit. It reminds me of Kevin Durant. I love NBA basketball. I love watching it. Kevin Durant now is, of course, on the Brooklyn Nets. He just left in free agency from the Golden State Warriors. This quote is actually so profound. And it comes after Kevin Durant won his first NBA championship with Golden State a couple of years ago. And as they were going through their second, his second season with them, they were going through a season in which uh, they are very uh, frustrated and stressed because there's not as much to uh, keep them motivated. As a team, once you win it, the hardest one to win, they say, in the sports world is the second one. Why? Because you don't have the same drive and urge to win the, like you did in the first one. So he's frustrated. And actually in the second season, he, with the Warriors, he had a lot more ejections coming from a lot more technical fouls. And one ESPN journalist was interviewing him, and he was asking him, why? Why do you think you have this uptick in anger and technical fouls? And listen to what he says. Kevin Durant says, it's just my emotions and passion for the game. And then listen, this could be like it comes out of Ecclesiastes. He says, after winning that championship, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void, and it didn't. (laughs) Durant, at that time, number one NBA basketball player probably in the world. And he's saying what? That after he had reached that peak, it wasn't all that it had been cracked up to be. He was still searching. He was still pining for something. He was still longing for something to fill him. To satisfy him. To satiate the soul cravings that were, was deep within him. And that's not to say that championships don't matter and accolades are useless. They matter to a degree and then they do not. They don't matter in terms of eternity. And Kevin Durant was finding that out. That all of the professional successes he could ever muster were not giving him what he longed for. They were ineffective. 
Solomon here is finding that all of the pleasure and possessions and prestige he could ever want were proving inadequate for what he longed for. Because he cannot give himself what he longs for. You can only be given it. He says in verse 9 of chapter 1 that there's no new thing under the sun. No new thing can satisfy the deepest human longings and they weren't meant to. The inference of Ecclesiastes is just this. That all of these things are transient and empty. And the only lasting thing is God in Christ. Nothing outside of Christ can give you the peace that you crave. Nothing outside of God's purposes for you in this life, in this season, can give you what you crave. What you long for. And he intended us. He created us. To find that rest. And that purpose. By resting in his promises. Not in life's pleasures. Not in the prestige you can amass. And the accolades that you can attain. And the things that you can garner for yourself. And in that way. Ecclesiastes isn't like. A secret formula. For decoding our times and determining in which time we are in. I think it actually just gives us the language. Like King David before him. His dad. As he says in Psalm 46.10. To be still and know that he is God. He's God. We're not God. He is sovereign over the times. We can be still and know that He is completely sovereign over every season of life. And He's determined all of our times, all of your times, all of my times too, before the foundation of the world. Before you were even in your mother's womb, He knew exactly what you would be going through. He was sovereign over it all. He had already shed your blood for his blood for your sins, sins you haven't even committed yet. That's what makes us rest. That's what makes us have peace of the soul. Not becoming activists and trying to change something. That's all well and good in its own right. But that will never give you the peace that you crave, that will never give you the meaning that you long for. That is only found in God's hands. That is only found in God's presence. Zach Eswine, later in the same book, uh, going through Ecclesiastes, he says, he says this, Whatever time it is, Jesus is there with us. You want to find meaning and purpose in your life? Realize that you are dwelling and sitting with, and you have the presence of Emmanuel in your life right now, right where you are. That in your time, you have God with you. He's not far away from you. He hasn't separated himself. He is right here. He has with us. He is in the middle of our rubble. He's in the middle of our self-inflicted ruin in one Eden. That's what makes him such a good God. He hasn't let us go. He hasn't cast us off. He is sitting with us. That's what gives us purpose. We are given peace and purpose and rest and meeting, not by escaping and not by changing our times, but by resting and being still in the one who has ordered and ordained them. This is the meaning of life. 
And by that, that's probably meaning my time is done. <laughs> I hope that was a blessing to you. Uh, let's pray, and we'll close.